Uh, If you have a Bible, open with me to the book of Philippians. We're going to be in Philippians this morning. Philippians 2. If you were with us last week, we started uh, what will likely be a fairly short series uh, in the book of Philippians, about four weeks on this series, uh, on uh, on, on Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. Now, if you know anything about this book, I mean, we could spend, we could spend months and months throughout, through working our way through the book of Philippians. There's so much there. It's such a beautiful, rich book. But for us, in, in light of kind of where we're at as a church, and in light of where we are, um, even as a, as a culture and as a community, I wanted to take a, an overview approach and to really pick up on Paul's uh, major themes in the book, on Paul's core ideas, ideas like, like joy in the midst of suffering, she, she, that kid gets it. She knows. She's feeling it. She can feel the angst in the book of Philippians. Ideas like joy in the midst of suffering and conflict. Ideas like um, profound unity in the midst of division. And really the main theme of what Paul's talking about uh, throughout this book, what, what it looks like to, to live as the people of God in a world of discord. Or as as Paul put it last week in in verse uh, 27 of chapter 1, what it looks like to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. I went into the backstory last week, and you can read uh, in Acts chapter 16 the story of the planting of this church in Philippi. So you're welcome to go back. I'll I'll do a a little bit of catching up for us. This is Paul is writing this letter, um, likely imprisoned in Rome under house arrest. He is uh, likely chained to a, a Roman jailer and guard throughout the majority of the day and throughout all of the night. He is awaiting trial. He's awaiting uh, possible, probable execution um, by beheading for crimes against the empire. And he's writing this letter, this short letter to this church, uh, likely his favorite church. The church in this little town of Philippi. The first Christian church in Europe. And Paul begins this short letter by really gushing over this church. I mean, on, on, every, on every page, almost in every line, you can get a sense of his affection and his, his care for this community. And he calls them to rejoice too. Even, even though he's in a jail cell, he's calling them to rejoice. He's reminding them really that, that this is a win-win situation, that really life is, as a Christian, a win-win situation, that no matter what the trial, no matter what the obstacle, no matter what the conflict or division, Christ has won the day. No matter what happens to him, Paul says, whether he lives or dies, no matter what happens to this church in Philippi, Paul says, you have reason to rejoice because as we saw in chapter 1, Paul says, he who began this good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. So there is this sense, of course, we all feel it, right? When we experience conflict or, or opposition or, or frustration, when things aren't going our way, it feels like a real detour in our lives. And what Paul is saying in the midst of the, the, the crisis that's kind of happening in this church, he's saying things are going to be all right. No matter what the in fact, God is going to use that crisis. He is using whatever suffering you're experiencing for your good and for his glory. He's got you. He's going to complete his good work. And so live in a manner worthy of the gospel. So we'll pick up here right where we left off. We'll start in chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, 
If there's, if there's any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any, any affection and sympathy, he calls them to complete his joy. And the way that Paul is calling them to complete his joy, he says, I want you to be of the same mind. I want you to have the same love. Being in full accord with one another, doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, counting others as more significant than ourselves. In fact, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. In many ways, what Paul is saying in chapter 2 uh, he's really showing us how to do what he called us to do in chapter 1. He's, he's calling us in chapter 1 to live this life uh, in a manner worthy of the gospel. And this is what it looks like. We see it clearly in, in these first few verses. That, that it means being, being of the same mind. Having this, this shared love among the people of God. That we are of one accord. In fact, that we're doing nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but instead, in, in humility, we're, we're, counting, we're thinking about other people, we're thinking about the rest of us as more important than ourselves. We're not just looking to our own interests or furthering our own agenda, our own conveniences or whatever. Paul says, look to the interests of others. There are really only two imperatives in chapter 1 uh, and up to this point in chapter 2. And it's live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And Paul says, I want to complete my joy. And all the rest is just how. This is what it's going to look like. This kind of radical unity. And even as I was reading this passage this week, I'm actually hard-pressed to find a more relevant passage to November 2020. I mean, think, about, think about what Paul is saying here. Think about what Paul is calling this church to, what kind of life and what kind of behavior Paul is calling this church to. He's saying, be, I want you to be of the same mind. Now, that, that doesn't mean that we, we all share the same opinion, right? It, it doesn't mean that we can't be persuaded by uh, different political policies or even conflicting ideas. Of course, we, we can and should have different opinions. Paul's not calling for sameness. He's calling for unity. By, share, by having uh, different opinions, that's how we grow. That's how we learn, right? That's how we change. But Paul is calling them to this kind of, to be driven in unity together by, by a common worldview or a common vision. He's saying, I want, you to, I want you to think about the gospel and what that means. And I, want you, I want that to kind of shape your vision for how you live, that you guys are all arm in arm on that idea. And that that will begin to create a kind of unity in the midst of varying opinions and divisions. He says, I want you to be in, in, in accord, in sync, in, in tune with one another. That we would be driven, not, uh, that we, and that we would be motivated, not by our own ambitions, our own preferences, our own, uh, our own desires. But instead, he says, I want, you to make, I want you to make decisions on the basis of what's best for your neighbor. To think of others as more significant than yourself. To look out for your neighbor's interests as well as your own. It's not easy, church. These are hard words from the Apostle Paul. Hard, hard words from God to us. In, in other words, Paul's saying, if the, gospel, if the gospel is real to you, 
If the gospel's real to you, if you really believe that it's true, if it really means something to you, then show it. Live like that. If you are in Jesus, act like it. It should be seen. And just to be clear, when Paul's using this language and this idea of humility, we see it there in verse 3. Some some translations, maybe if you're using the the King James Version, it'll say in lowliness of mind, which I think is a pretty good translation. This idea of humility was actually seen as a a character flaw in the ancient world. This, this 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 was not prized in the ancient world. This was not a virtue in the ancient world. Being self assertive, taking what you wanted, taking what was yours, kind of demanding of your rights, that was seen as the virtue. But being self-effacing was a character flaw. It was seen as foolish or disgraceful. And so what Paul is doing here is he's he's redeeming this idea of of a real, costly, sacrificial kind of selflessness. This is this is wildly countercultural, right? This is not what we'd expect. And, and this is, when, when the Philippians are reading this letter from the Apostle Paul, I mean, this is, this is no doubt going to knock them over because they're thinking, how do, this, isn't, this isn't what the culture demands. This is, this is a culture of holding tightly to our, our rights and our privileges and our convenience, not of, not of letting it go for the sake of the other. And Paul's saying, that's what you're being called to in Christ. That's, that's what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel. Now consider the implications of what Paul is saying. I've been struggling all week. I've been struggling all week reading this passage. How does this affect, what does this mean for me? What does this mean for my family? Paul's saying essentially, church, your, your, your preferences and your sensibilities and your ideals and your rights must be set aside for your neighbor's sake in order to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. What does this look like for us? What does it look like for you, for me? What does it look like within our families? What would it look like in Redeemer or in our community or, or, or in our country? And how are we doing? What needs to change in our lives? What would, what would this kind of behavior and action change about our faith or, about, or, or within our relationships or even in terms of our dependency on God? Paul goes on, he says, this kind of, this kind of radical selflessness is essentially the, the, it's the essence of the gospel. This is what Jesus did. And then he goes on, he says, this, this is the gospel message in, in verse 5. So I want you to have this mind among yourselves, this, this worldview, this vision that we just discussed of, of radical unity, of, of, of unbelievably sacrificial selflessness. Have this kind of worldview among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So what he's saying is, so, so Jesus, though he was in the form of God, though he had all the rights, all the power, all the authority, all the sovereignty, all the knowledge, all the wisdom, that, that he was the only man who knew the right thing to do all the time in the right way for the right reasons, the only perfect person, he instead gave up all of that. He, was, he divested himself of all those rights and authority. And he didn't think of equality with God as something to be grasped, as something to be 
used or taken or, or claimed. It's he gave it up. He, he emptied himself. He, he divested himself of his rights by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So you can follow Paul's logic. Paul's saying, church, I love you. I want to be with you. And in spite of the conflict, in spite of the struggle, in spite of the fear, in spite of the anxiety and even the shame they're feeling because Paul's in prison and they're not sure how this is going to play out. He says, your life should be one that, that is, is worthy of this gospel that you're holding on to. And that, that, that looks like a life of, of, of giving, of not, of, not of taking and holding. It's, it's of laying down yourself, not trying to stand up for yourself. It's of, 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 of radical sort of emptying of yourself for the sake of the other. Just that's what Jesus did. That's the story of the gospel. This passage in Philippians, those, that, that little chunk there uh, in verses 5 through 11, it's, uh, theolog- theologians refer to that as, the, as the, uh, the hymn of Christ or the ode to Christ. It's actually one of the oldest, if not um, you know, the oldest song or hymn or theological poem uh, found in the ancient church, likely predating Paul. Paul's quoting this song. Tim Keller said, if the Bible were a a mountain range, this passage in Philippians would be one of its peaks. This is a beautiful poem. This is a poem about Christ's divinity, about his humanity, about his service and love for one another. In many ways, a very clear and concise summary of the gospel itself. And Paul's saying to live in a manner worthy of the gospel means to embody this kind of radical unity, this selfless sacrifice, and we see it lived out perfectly in the life of Christ. The only perfect man who suffered all of our imperfections. And therefore, in verse 9, God has exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the story of the gospel, and we're to live in light in a manner worthy of that gospel. A story of God coming down to us, sinking down to us, and then lifting us up with him. In his book on miracles, C.S. Lewis describes it this way. He talks about the Christian story in these kinds of terms. In the Christian story, God descends and then he reascends. He, he comes down, comes down from the heights of absolute being into time and space. He comes down into humanity, into our, into our muck. He condescends. But he goes down to come up again and to bring the whole ruined world up with him. Lewis says, one has to picture the idea of a strong man stooping lower and lower. He has to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift it up, but he almost disappears under the burden before he straightens his back and lifts this load on his shoulders. Or maybe you think of a diver who goes down with a splash. He vanishes, rushing down through the, uh, through, the, through the green water, through the warm water, down into the black, emptiness, cold. Down through increasing pressure into death-like regions of ooze and slime and decay. But then he comes back up again, he, back to color, back to life, back to light. His lungs bursting until suddenly he, he brings to the surface, holding in his hand, dripping that precious thing that he went down to save. 
This is a story of God coming down to us, to our level. Not a story of strength, but a story of weakness, a story of a a suffering servant, not not a story of, of taking, but one of giving so that we could be brought up with him. The only, the only man with absolute right to complete authority and freedom and pleasure and convenience. Living perfectly content in heaven with the Father and Spirit. Divested himself of those rights. He emptied himself. Scripture says he humbled himself to save and to serve and to forgive and love all of us who have no right to ultimate authority or freedom or pleasure or convenience. Paul says, live like that for one another. Live like that for one another. That's what it means to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Humility is obviously one of the distinguishing marks of Christianity as compared to other major world religions. The Christian story, our story, is not a story of a a man becoming a god, It's not a story of gaining. Ours is a story, the gospel is a story of God becoming a man. It's a story of of giving up. The the, the heart of Christianity is humble, sacrificial self-denial. At the center of our faith is a cross. Consider that. Consider what that might mean for our lives and for our relationships. And Paul knows that's a struggle. Paul knows that our sin is is pulling us in the opposite direction. What our natural tendency is, our natural tendency is to cling all the more tightly to our personal rights and our privileges and our pleasures and our conveniences, sometimes even at the expense of our neighbor. Our natural tendency is essentially opposite to that of Jesus, where Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be taken or exploited. We, on the other hand, though we are not in the form of God, we think equality with God is something for us to grasp. We think of ourselves as sovereign. We think of ourselves as ultimately important, as ultimately in control. The world should really basically revolve around our needs and our desires and our interests. This call to live a life in a manner worthy of the gospel is at war with our sinful nature. I mean, Maybe you're hearing this passage for the first time. I've been under this weight all week. My my soul can feel the war. There's so many things I want to hold tightly to. I don't want to relinquish. I don't want to give up. I don't want to sacrifice. I don't want to be humble in those places. I don't want to be weak. I want to be strong. And Christ is calling us to something, a new kind of life. A new set of priorities. And Paul knows this is a war in our souls. And so he encourages us. He says, this isn't going to come easy to you. This isn't going to be nat. This is something you have to work at. This is something that you have to work at. He says in verse 12, therefore, my, my beloved, you can see his care and affection for these people. My beloved, as you've obeyed me then, so now, not also in my presence, but also even more in my absence. He says, I want you to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
Now, just to be clear, this is, this is not Paul telling individual Christians that their salvation is based on their own personal work or performance, right? Clearly, that's not what Paul's saying. That's, that's contrary to everything else Paul has said in the New Testament. Paul's not saying your salvation is based on how hard you work or how well you perform. What he's saying, Paul is encouraging the church collectively, the, the, the pronouns are plural, He's encouraging the church collectively to work out their salvation, work out in their lives among the body what God has worked inside of their souls. Work out with one another what God has worked in you. He's saying, God, is, if we believe the gospel, the, the, we, we trust that God has done something in our hearts. He's done something in our lives. He's forgiven us. He's set us free. He's, he's come down to us. He's given up so much for us. He's poured his life out for us. So Paul's saying, I want you to work that out. Work out the implications of that within the body. Work out what God has worked in. Live out those implications of the gospel with respect and with reverence, with, with understanding of the gravity and the worth of the one who works in us. And in light of what he did to save us, work out with fear and trembling what God has worked in. And here's what it looks like, Paul says. It looks like doing all things without grumbling or disputing. So that we may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding, holding fast to the word of life. All right, so that's what we're holding on to. We're, holding, we're, we're not holding tightly to our, our preferences and privileges and rights and our conveniences. He's saying, hold tightly to the word of life. Hold tightly to the gospel so that in the day of Jesus Christ, he says, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul says, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering, even if my, he's using this image, he's like a cup full of water that's being poured out, emptied out on the ground. For your sake, he says, that I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you too should rejoice and be glad with me. Living in a manner worthy of the gospel means having a kind of radical unity in a life of sacrificial selflessness, not begrudgingly, but without grumbling, without disputing, without all the fights, but with gladness and with joy. Those are, the, those are the only commands there in verses 14 through 18. He says, I want you to do all things without complaining, and I want you to be happy about it. Those are the only two commands in that little section. And honestly, that sounds like a pretty good life, doesn't it? I mean, I can say that as a dad, it sounds like a pretty good life. As a pastor, it sounds like a pretty good life. Paul is calling all of us Christians, he's saying, I want this life of living with, with one another, living in the gospel, it's a life of, of giving up of yourself. And you're not, doing, you're not complaining about that. You're not doing that begrudgingly. You're not doing, it's not about, a, it's not a fight. You're not picking a fight with one another. In fact, you're doing all of that with joy. There's no fights, there's no arguments, there's no complaints. Just joy and gladness and rest. That's a beautiful community, isn't it? That's a beautiful vision that Paul is giving us for community life. 
Paul's saying, this is, what we're, this is the kind of relationship we're called to. And it's been purchased for us by this ultimate sacrifice of God emptying himself out. Both as an example to us to look to, but also he who empowered us through that act for us to do what we could not have done ourselves. Charles Spurgeon, when he's commenting on this passage, he, he says that the, that the words be innocent there in verse 15 could be translated... Be hornless, like an animal, be hornless, meaning without the ability to harm. He says, he he writes, uh, it's as if we were to be creatures not only that do no harm, but that we could not do any harm. Like sheep that not only would not devour, but could not devour. For it would be contrary to our very nature. He says, we would have no teeth to bite, no fangs with which to sting, no poison with which to slay. The church would live in such a way that it would, be, it would be contrary to our nature to hurt one another, to complain and bicker. It would be true to our nature to rejoice and to give up of ourselves, to love one another, to consider the needs of our neighbors above our own needs. No biting, no fangs, no poison but unshakable joy. That's what Paul's calling us to. And then he concludes chapter two somewhat anticlimactically by giving these two examples of, he's saying this is this kind of life, examples of this kind of life, these two guys, Timothy and Epaphroditus. You see there in verse 19, one commentator said that, you know, you can, and we talked about this last week, there are so many life verses in the book of Philippians, but no one ever chooses a life verse from chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. Paul says, I hope that in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. So he's saying, Timothy, my brother, my co-laborer who is with me and caring for me, he's an example like this. There's no one like him. They all seek their own interests, not of those of Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. As a son with a father, he served with me in the gospel. And so I hope, therefore, to send him to you just as soon as I see how it goes with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. And I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker. Listen to the language he My brother, my worker, my, my fellow soldier, your messenger and minister to my needs. Epaphroditus was actually a member of this Philippian congregation. And they sent Epaphroditus to Paul with, with encouragement and with money to help support him. And so Epaphroditus is there with Paul now, um, caring for him while he's under house arrest. And he almost died getting there. He risked his life, literally, to serve the church, the ministry of the church, and and, and his care and affection for Paul. It says, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard he was sick. And if he was sick, he was near to death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but me too, because he lived, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. And so I'm eager to send him to you, therefore, that you may rejoice too at seeing him again. And that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with joy. And honor such men. Honor people like this. Look around at these people who are living in such a way. Give them honor. He he nearly died for the work of Christ. Risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So Paul's kind of summarizing his teaching by saying, look, it's, it's like these two guys here are, they're living like, these are two living, breathing examples. Live in a way that demonstrates your gospel transformation. 
And it'll look like radical unity and deeply sacrificial selflessness. This is what it means to be like Christ. This is the core of what it means to be a Christian. And here, and here are two brothers, here are two men in the faith who are doing their best to live this way now. Men who have given up a great deal, even risked their own lives to serve their community. Let me ask you, church, how are we doing? How are we doing? These are the questions I've been asking myself this week. Are we striving for, for deep and lasting joy or for our own personal cheap comfort? Because those are often at odds. Are we laboring for kind of radical unity within the church or for our own personal convenience? Because those are often at odds. I wonder if our, if our loudest call is for our own personal rights or for an unparalleled wholeness that comes from sacrificial selflessness. To what extent are we prioritizing the needs of our neighbors? I don't have the answers to these questions. Consider. Consider for yourself. Consider for your family. Let's consider for our community together. What kind of people do we want to live? To, to, to what extent are our lives being lived in a manner worthy of the gospel, worthy and reflective of the story that we hold so dear? That the only perfect man gave up his rights and privileges and pleasures, the rights and privileges and pleasures of heaven, he gave those up to imperfect men so that we would have the rights and privileges and pleasures of heaven that we never deserved and could have never earned. Church, God is calling us to a, a radical re-examination, reorientation of modern priorities. Let's look to Christ this morning, our, our, our perfect model and our only hope, who showed us that the path, the path to lasting joy and transformation was found not through getting more for ourselves, but through giving more of ourselves for the other. And in this way, we join with Christ, who Scripture says, for the, for the joy set before him endured the cross. Can you think about that just for a moment, church? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy set before him, he gave himself away for you and for me that we may live in a manner worthy of that great story, of that best news, that would transform how we talk and how we relate and how we live with one another. And it's so desperately needed in November 2020. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the truth of scripture, but God, we thank you for the gospel. God, we thank you for what you did for us, and God, I pray that would not only hit our heads, God, but that would sink down into our hearts and transform our very being, that, we, that in this life we would live as transformed people. Not holding so tightly, but letting loose of those things 
for the sake of the other. Holding tightly instead to your word of life, to the truth, to you, to your promises, to the gospel. God, you are showing us somehow. We don't understand it yet, God. We confess we don't fully understand it. But God, we we trust you and your wisdom and your word. And God, somehow you are teaching us that there is joy to be found in giving ourselves away. And so God, help us. Help us see what that looks like for ourselves, for our families, for our children, for our, for our spouses, for our, our jobs, for our church, for our, our lives, God, for our families. Help us. Be with us now, we pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.